This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. People have varied definitions of living life to the fullest. The way we look at things is you want to live life with the tools you've been given and leverage everything that you know to enjoy things, live a positive, impactful life, impact others if possible. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it LAMA for short. I'm Peter Bowes and this is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, today I'm joined by Kevin Lum. Kevin, I think it's fair to say, shares my interest in living life to the full, maximising the knowledge that we have at our fingertips and as far as Kevin's concerned, sharing the wisdom that he has acquired during what is an incredibly varied career. Kevin lives in the US state of Arkansas. He is a Hollywood film producer and the co-founder and CEO of Advanced Tissue. That's a medical company that specialises in the delivery of wound care supplies. Kevin, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Thank you so much. I say a varied life and, and career. That's probably an understatement. Well, uh, varied obviously has a lot of definitions. So I, I, I like to say that it's been a very uh, interesting ride and, and very unstructured and follow where the markets and the winds might take me. And when someone asks you, maybe that elevator pitch even, uh, what do you do? Do you have a kind of a, a concise, pithy response? Sure. If, my, if you're asking my children, they would say, talk on the phone. <laughs> Uh, if you would ask uh, others, they might uh, have other definitions and, and descriptions. My own personal one is, you know, my job is to find solutions for everyday, everyday problems related to health matters. And as it relates to diabetes at the current time, type 2 diabetes is, is an epidemic worldwide. And we feel that what we're doing is making a difference in the lives of patients that have been diagnosed and have uh, chronic problems as a result of the diabetic. And maybe it's fair to say then, I think I mentioned this, that a common denominator is living the best life. It's living life to the full. Absolutely. And, and you know, that, that comes, people have varied, you know, definitions of living life to the fullest. I think that the, the way we look at things is you want to live life with the tools you've been given and you and leverage everything that you know to enjoy things, live a positive, impactful life, impact others if, if possible. And with a disease state that has symptoms that are, you know, debilitating and, and, and a lot of uh, definitions would be grotesque with wounds, et cetera, it's very difficult to live a full life because you have other judgments coming at you with people, yourself, just all things considered. It, it's uh, living a life is, is a difficult thing. It is. So you mentioned wounds, you mentioned disease, and uh, mm-hmm. I said the name of your company is Advanced Tissue. Right. Just explain exactly what it is that you Sure. Uh, Advanced Tissue, we, we formed back in 99. 2000, uh, around that time, saw an underserved market, underserved market being wound care for patients that have lower extremity uh, wounds. And we didn't know when we started the business that that the diabetes epidemic was going to just literally exponentially explode. In 1985, there were 30 million diabetics worldwide. Today, there are 400 million. And 20% of those patients or more, 20 to 22%, are going to have a wound in their life. Many are going to have multiples. And we've uh, been in the business for, like I said, nearly 20 years or 18 years. I added a little bit to it. Um, and we, we've seen uh, an incredible in improvement in care, but we've also see, seen an incredible increase in number of patients. 
Do we fully understand why there has been that dramatic increase in the number of people with diabetes? I think I would be arrogant to say we fully understand anything in healthcare. I think we understand a lot of the lifestyle decisions that are creating that problem. And a lot of those are – I had someone tell me the other day, I said, oh, so you take – you help people who are digging their graves with a knife and a fork. And, and there – you know, there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. Um, Diabetes, in large part, is a direct result of poor eating habits, uh, introduction of sh- uh, excessive amounts of sugar. I believe certain things, but clinically there are, are other clear definitions of uh, why diabetes happens to a patient. It's not necessarily just obese patients. It could be um, a, someone that's in good shape then. You would never in a million years think they had diabetes. And then you have others that are textbook. You think they definitely have diabetes, and they don't. So it's a very non-selective disease state that one gets. And I don't know why, I don't know that we really know why. If we knew why, I think we could solve the problem. Right. So help me join the dots here. I'm sure people with diabetes will, will understand more about what you're saying. For those of us who don't, you talk about wounds and the care of wounds. Mm-hmm. People think of diabetes as a, a sugar issue, right. to put it very broadly. So how do wounds occur? Sure. Uh, wounds... I'm going to be very elementary because I'm not a physician. Wounds typically are a result of the thickening of the blood. The viscosity of the blood is uh, regulated through insulin. And again, I'm being very elementary. The thickening of the blood is due to an insulin resistance that we have. When our pancreas decides it wants to produce and our body decides it doesn't want to receive. So the thickening of the blood Lower extremity wounds are typical with diabetes because the blood cannot go to the lower part of our leg very effectively. You have enough to keep the leg alive, but when you have a a scrape, a sore, an injury, blood is what heals the wound. It takes oxygen, nutrients, et cetera, to rebuild the tissue, to have epithelial growth, and we can have a coverage. So what happens is when when you have an injury, the blood supply to the lower extremity is prohibited or reduced. And patients, a lot of them, find out they have diabetes when they go to the doctor because a wound won't heal. But what happens is the blood is not carrying the proper nutrients to the wound site. There, and white, you know, white blood cells, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, therefore, you have this opening chasm of epithelial tissue that ultimately begins to die because it, it starts to necrotize or eat itself away because there's no healthy tissue to support it. So not properly cared for, this is a situation that can simply spiral out of control. Immediately. It's, it's so interesting. People that come into our office, sometimes we'll see a picture of a wound, not patients, but a picture of a wound. And they'll they say, how can it get that bad? How could they not see that coming? And I'm talking, describing a wound that literally the patient will have looked like they've been dipped in hot oil. Knees to feet are just a horrific wound. And you have to know that they are there, – there is more that's going on in their world than we know, of course – they know that there's something out of control, but it go, it gets out of control very quickly. I mean, you can literally in a month have a, a very small wound turning into this huge chasm in their leg, like they've been bit by a shark. Is it possible to say how many people ignore those, in terms of proportions, ignore those early signs? I think the majority of people ignore the early signs, honestly. And that's the reason they find out they have diabetes when they have a wound that won't heal because of, uh, they go to the doctor and the doctor will come in and say, do you know you have diabetes? And they said, I have no idea. I don't have diabetes. Well, yes, you do. And that's the reason this wound's not healing. So now they're, they're thrown into this spiral of health decisions that they have to make, either through diet, through injection of you know, certain insulins, 
And, and then they have to deal with a, a hard-to-heal or non-healing wound on their lower extremity. It, it's, it's tough. It's a very difficult position. And is there a, a communication issue here that people – it seems to take some people by surprise? Yeah. Uh, I just – I wrote a blog about this. I, I was a little angry uh, when I wrote it because and someone asked me the other day. It says, you know, why can't people understand that what they're doing to themselves is, is simply self-destructive? And I don't know that there's a there's an answer, you know, because we the Bill Gates Foundation and Rotary and and all of, and the Heifer International, they all go into these villages in Africa and teach these people how to raise cattle, how to plant crops, how to create a clear water supply, how to um, you know the Gates Foundation and how to have you know proper health um, in a, in a community that has no health care. And in America, we have all of the knowledge, all of the information, fantastic health care. And we still are one of the biggest, I guess, biggest victims of this disease state because of our lack of self-control. Uh, we find that that patients, me, you, have a tendency to hear what we want to hear. And if it gets in the way of that perfectly good life we're living, it's it's intrusive and it's difficult and it's it's confining and you become a victim of your own circumstances. That's what's occurring. It's not really about communication. We have great communication to people. I mean, you you teach people all the time. But are they listening? I don't think they are. For people with acute conditions, it's almost hard to believe, although I do get what you're saying, that they will leave a a doctor's office. I suppose most people have experienced this to some extent in terms of just taking the medications, looking after yourself as the doctor prescribes it, but then real life gets in the way and you forget and you say, oh, well, it won't matter. I'll just miss 24 hours and catch up tomorrow. But with something acute, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And what we found, and we, we do a lot of research on health literacy and understanding how patients respond to instructions. And what we found is if a patient, when they hit 55, 60, and they have any type of disease state on board, when they go to the doctor, they, they remember 20% of what they heard in the doctor's office before they, they, they lose 80% before they get to the car, including the doctor's office address. So they're not listening to what the physician's telling them because there, many of them have just heard that they have a disease state and they can't eat donuts anymore. It's a big deal. Or they can't go to McDonald's anymore. Or something lifestyle is going to have to change. And the one thing we can cha- cannot deal with changing very well is our diet. I mean, there's commercials, Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem, all that spends millions of dollars constantly communicating to patients through celebrities or people through celebrities encouraging them to lose weight, which is has to be, if you're 300 pounds, has to be the most fantastic feeling in the world to have that those barriers begin to break as you reduce the you reduce your size, you have more energy, you know, full of life. So it's really an interesting dynamic when they when they find out they're sick, they shut down. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the solutions. Which is a, a huge problem in itself, isn't it? It is. We can make all the medical advances uh, that we do constantly, and especially as it applies to something like diabetes and medications. But if, if the patient isn't listening, and it, that's what it boils down to, right. we're not going to get very far. We're not. Uh, and so that's where we come in. Um, and when a patient has a wound site, uh, a wound, they, they've been told, if you don't have this corrected, if we can't correct this problem, you're going to lose your leg. That is a wake-up call. Patients get real serious real fast when they think there's going to be an amputation. So doctors use that as a fear tactic in a lot of a lot of times. Eighty percent of all amputations can be avoided if the patient will just follow simple instructions because the wound is creating the need for the amputation because they the, the leg is dying. So they have to cut it off before it kills the body. And if they have proper wound care and proper treatment, 
they typically will get better, and they cycle, but they follow simple instructions. So that's where we've come in, and we've created a platform to train patients or to reinforce what the physician told them the day before they need to act. So explain to me more about how that works. How are you effectively bridging this gap? Sure. In 2000, we started the company uh, knowing that patients would become very confused with multiple products having to be used on a single wound dressing. A Band-Aid is easy. When you have a, something to cover, a collagen, an alginate, and other absorptive products, et cetera, on a wound, and you're 70 years old and you've never been around healthcare, you might as well be trying to calculate the trajectory of a rocket to the moon because it's very unfamiliar. So what we did is original, we put everything in one package. So every wound dressing change, just like opening a Band-Aid or a surgical kit, they would open one package and it would have everything they would need to change their dressings. That eliminated part of the confusion. And then in 2014, we recognized that the doctor's offices were getting phone calls the day after the patient was told how to use the dressings. First call, I got my box. What do I do with the dressings? How do I change these? We just showed you, Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith couldn't remember. So it ultimately created the patient had to come back to the doctor's office, crowd the schedule, not be paid for it to teach them how to do it because physicians typically care a lot about their patients. And we support that. In 2014, we recognized this. So we said, good, good grief. We're interested in the film business. So I got in the film business, um, shot a few films, inappropriately funded, disaster. I'm recovering. It's fine. We, 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 we know how to do it now. That's, that's Hollywood. That's Hollywood. I know. So I'm 14 films deep, and I think I've only got one in question. It's hurt <laughs> me. So I, I think that's a success story in itself. But we took that ideology of tr- teaching patients or teaching people through film. Because we all go to film and we always learn something, maybe nonsense, or we maybe a quote a line from a movie or remember something that occurred or maybe a fact. Every film, and, and it's associated with fun. It's associated with fun or uh, moving away from your reality. Right. So we took that idea and we said, "Gosh, we can shoot video and show patients how to change their dressings." Well, how do they find that video online? Mm, we're kidding ourselves. An eighty-year-old logging in putting a uh, password in, et cetera. It's not that common. It happens, but it's not that common with Facebook. So we took the idea and we said, we're going to access it through a QR code that we put on the package. That's the way we're going to get them to watch the videos. Well, we found that the videos had to be unique to that patient. It couldn't be a sample of a video because people at that age are literal. Well, I don't have these products that I'm seeing in the video. How how am I supposed to use this? So the next obstacle, how do we take that product dressing combination and create a video that specifically contains those products. So we put together a video assembly technology in our office. So when a patient order comes in, they put the order in the system, it creates a QR code attached to that patient's file. And that video is an assembly of videos that we've shot. And and they can see their video, not of them, but similar to what they're using. And, And a doctor or a nurse changing the dressing. So it's a little bit like, just to draw an analogy, where you can these days go online and bespoke, uh, choose a menu. You know, I want the salad without onions, but I want right. extra broccoli. Except we, we don't ask them what they want. We tell them what they have, what the doctor told them to do. Right. But it's a system that allows you to do the choosing to yes. produce the video that's most appropriate. Right. So we had to do that quickly. We can't have patients that are waiting a week, two weeks to get their product. So we've perfected as much as you can in video. 
perfected the model where if the order comes in by 5 p.m. today, it's shipped out with that video QR code attached to it for delivery tomorrow by 10.30. Now, just to explain a little bit more about the – you mentioned a QR code and a video. Again, I'm thinking of older people who don't know how to read codes. This is the problem, and we found that this was a barrier to entry. It was some headwind. We had some engagement because we can see when they open a QR code. We can see what video they're watching. We, I mean, we know exactly what's going on and how many times, what time of day, et cetera. And we saw that we had some impact and some engagement, but not what we felt was enough. We should probably, for those people listening who still don't know what a QR code is, sure. it's, that, it's that array of dots, Squ- squiggly lines that you point your phone at with a certain app up until recently where I know at least the iPhone, maybe other phones as well, can actually read it with the camera. Right. And, and, and it, it, the QR, every QR code is unique in and of itself. So it's millions and millions of different pixels that are read. So we have a QR codes that we've developed. It, it's very easy software that does that. But it attaches the video. So when they go and they, they take their phone with a camera and it views the code, it takes them to my server with a website that has their video stored on it. And they can watch the, the video of changing the dressings. What we found was a great idea. But there was headwind. We could not figure out how to be able to communicate to a patient real time that didn't understand how to do a QR code, didn't understand how to go online and, and watch it on, on their computer, and how with the HIPAA regulations and all the other things, how do you communicate to patients? So what we did, had a PR company that we had worked with for a while, said, you ought to use video postcards. I said, well, what do you – I've never heard of that. I said, you know, the birthday cards that you open, and when you open it up, it sings happy birthday to you. I said – well, we can't tell them how to use the dressings. I mean, it, it's it's foolish. I said, no, there's one with an LED screen in it. And, of course, I said, there's no way. That's That would never work. It's too expensive. So we started doing some research, and these cards are available through Lamborghini and high-end brands and some medical companies, insurance companies using for marketing purposes. So we worked with this company, got the price point down to a, a certain level. So now what we're able to do is preload that video onto the onto a video card we still produce the QR code on the package in case they lose the card. We still have it available under their patient number on our website, so they have multiple ways to see that video. And we put that video card in the box that we've uploaded the video to, so they don't have to do anything but open it up. When they break that magnet, when they open the card, the video starts. And what they see is credit given to the hospital because we want them to understand that this is not just us doing it. This is in conjunction with another provider. They see a celebrity that comes on and tells them how important it is that they do what's shown on that card because celebrities, they engage. We're trying to get the common Jimmy Stewart model. And then we have a video that we've shot multiple segments of, and now we're down to where it resonates. It's in a home setting with a doctor doing a, a narrative, a wife changing her husband's dressings in a very homey setting, and you remember it. It's not step by step. It's just watching someone do something with a voiceover telling them how to do it. So it's easy and it's relatable. Easy, relatable, and, and it's rechargeable. I mean, you know, to be even And a novelty. And a well, novelty, it is. I think would make people want to open it and watch. No one wants to call it a novelty because it's healthcare and, and you're trying to be innovative and, and a disruptor in the business. But it is a novelty. But it's, got, it's a novelty with an impact, a tremendous impact. It's not the pet rock. It's something that changes lives, and they're going to show their grandkids, and they're going to show their neighbor and their nurse or whomever, and we're finding the engagement is absolutely incredible. What sort of reaction have you had? What have people said to you about it? I can't say the word on air, (laughs) but it's usually a shocked word like, oh, my goodness, fill the blank, that we're using such a high level of technology to reach a patient. 
people forget patients are the reason we do this, and we sincerely want them to get better because we're never going to run out of patients. Now, if I was going to heal the last patient, I'd find another industry to go into. We've serviced probably 300,000-ish with over a million wounds. There's 6 million wound patients in the U.S., and we're the largest company that does this. So the market's barely scraped, barely barely touched. And the U.S. is an easier market because of the way our healthcare system is structured. We've got groups in Saudi Arabia talking to us, and Switzerland, the U.K., Mexico, all are interested in what we're doing. So you are really combining your, your skills in the medical profession, but your Hollywood side as well is coming into this in terms of how to communicate. It is, and we're even shooting videos of lifestyle, showing patients what a happy elderly person looks like that's controlling their health and, and eating properly and enjoying their grandchildren. We're showing them what it can be. And I think that when I say people aren't listening, they begin to listen when they compare themselves to others. It's so amazing to me to see people that are in a position of declining health and they don't recognize the fact that they're not just like everyone else. But when someone – it's kind of like when you were a kid and you were, caught, you were sick that day. Your mom says you have to stay inside and all your friends are playing. But, Mom, I feel okay now. You still have to stay inside. You didn't understand that and it, it didn't resonate. You're going to get sick, Pete. Peter, when you go outside, the weather's bad, and you're going to get worse. And tomorrow you can't go out and play. So you followed your mother's instructions because you didn't want you didn't want to, but you did it. And that's what we're seeing with these uh, with these people. They've become victims of their own lifestyle. You mentioned a healthy elderly person playing with uh, grandkids. Right. What is your image of healthy aging? What's it going to be like hmm. to be an older person with all your faculties, physically and mentally? Sure. What, what kind of life do you look forward to? Uh, great question. I'm not sure I've given it a whole lot of thought because we live each day day to day, uh, unfortunately, in this society. I see myself as remaining relevant. And relevant being being able to connect with people of all ages. I think that's probably the one thing that makes an old person old fast is the inability to connect. And that terrifies me, frankly, that I'm losing, I will lose the ability to connect with a 25 year old or a 21 year old. I don't think like they do. I can't pick, pick up game basketball with them like I used uh, to do when I was 25, but we can talk about it. And I know what it, I know what it's like. So I think the relevant, being relevant in the space is great. I want to be able to travel. I don't want to have to worry about where my wheelchair is. I don't have to worry about if they've got a ventilator on board the ship if I'm on a cruise or that, you know, any of the other life-saving things that are out there. We're all going to die someday. I just don't want it to be bad until I get there. I don't mind dying. I just don't want it to be awful to the day I do. So that's what I see as a good life. This is the health span that we're talking about as opposed to lifespan. It's all about living those long, it's, healthy years and optimizing abs- what we can do to get there. Absolutely. Health span is a fantastic term, and I'm sure you've used it before. Yeah. It, it is a fantastic term. Lifespan is, lifespan is remaining in the 80s, but health span, I think, is becoming rather in the 60s. Health span is moving into the 70s and 80s. And the other thing, one thing I've learned from doing interviews with people for this podcast is you talked about interacting with younger people and not always having common interests. And I think we can all accept why that is. At the same time, there are often areas where we do have common interests with a, a younger person who has grown up with the tech that we're all using by necessity. And I think certainly in terms of um, getting older and wanting to be part of that world, a younger generation interacting with you in terms of what we do every day and learning new things can actually help us 
stay at least mentally Absolutely. younger than our age. And we have to make it interesting for them to want to do that. Nothing is more frustrating than have a, having a person that has no comprehension of what you're trying to teach them to do. It's not fun. And the younger generation, they want to have fun in everything they do. And this is part of it. We've touched on your Hollywood work, but we haven't really delved into it. How did you get into it? Good question. I was uh, helping my daughter break into the music industry. She's a country music singer, and and absolutely, most people talk about their kids, and it's, oh, my gosh, she's she's fantastic. Well, she really is. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's it's a little startling when I hear her sing, but – and she's doing well. But my son was in the, in the music business, and he would tour and do the drunks and janitor tour, you know, the 12 o'clock shows and bars with 12 people in them. And I just couldn't see my daughter doing that. So we've got to find another way. So I approached my attorney here in L.A., who I thought was a music attorney, and I said, I'm going to break my daughter's music. And I, I'll, I told her I would help her, so tell me how to help her. And he said, well, put her in a movie. And I said, what do you know about movies? And he said, 99% of my practice is movies. And I thought he was a music guy. I'm thinking, well, maybe that's the reason my son didn't make it. But but nonetheless, he said, put her in a movie. So I did. Uh, my first film that I think we're selling here in the next few weeks uh, that was shot two years ago, three years ago. And I put her in a movie. And she enjoyed it. She hated act, hated being an actress. She wants to sing. That's what she does for a living now. Um, but that was the the genesis to be involved in the movie business to help her. And then one project after another after another came in, and I understood the financing part of it. And scripting was important to me and understanding storylines and accuracy, all of those things. So I'm 14 films later. And looking, I have another project I'm talking about this afternoon here in L.A. Are you a, an instinctive storyteller? Is that where your passion lies? I think so. Uh, I, I was going to sell one of my companies several years ago, and the pressure of the diligence was, was really intense. And an outlet was for me to write fiction, fictional stories. I just had ideas and characters. I started writing on flights back and forth to Los Angeles and New York, working on this deal. And I wrote uh, about 10 screen modified screenplays. And hadn't made one yet, but it was fun, and it got me into the space, and I realized that this is it's it's important. Films are important. You can touch lives. You can impact people with them. You can oh, motivate you. They are part of our lives. They, we remember where we were. We remember the emotions sure. at the time, and, 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 and they stay with us. The only thing you don't have in a film is, is the smell. And they're going to fix that someday. I'm sure they will. I'm sure it's in the works. And you get to work with some great people. You've been working with Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston, Jennifer Garner. Uh, was in a, we did a film last year called Wakefield. It was released in May. Uh, it's done well. Um, we just released a film, uh, probably the biggest film I've been involved with, Marshall, about the first black Supreme Court justice, and his trajectory into that space by representing a, a person that had no hope of, of winning anything. He was going to lose his life either way, and it was success, and it was the beginning of a tr- incredible uh, legal career. And that, it is just about a snapshot of his life, isn't it? It is, it is one case of his life, and that one case was a, was a turning point. It was interesting because I really fought doing that film. I didn't want to do it. I read the script, and I thought, ah, oh, it's just didn't me. I just don't, I don't like this storyline because I can't see the accuracy because true stories are very, t- very tempting to do. But they're also very – there's a responsibility. You can revise history so quickly with a, with a film. Films revive, revise history, and I could point out several, but we won't. And it was important to me. So I wanted to find – I wanted to meet the writer. I wanted to find out who wrote this thing. Well, I found out it was the grandson of the attorney that Thurgood Marshall connected with in Connecticut to help him try the case. Probably pretty accurate. Um, and then Jonathan Sanger, who did Elephant Man, was a producer in Gen- – um, Paula Wagner, who did Mission Impossible. So it was a very good project, and it turned out very 
very solid, and it's a early days of Oscars contender, so we're pretty excited. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, if there you. is a common theme between what you do, perhaps it's education, because there's, this film, there's a great educational factor. If you know nothing about this man's life, you go away learning a lot about him and about the, the system that he works in. Yes, uh, but it's more than that. The films that I, lo- I, I want to be participating in, have a redemptive conclusion. It may be short-term redemption. We may find out more later, but they're not all true stories, but every story has to have redemption. It can't end. The films can't end that I do, can't end in total devastation or a negative. I want them to end on a positive note. And I also want them to be representing the unfortunate, the, the ones that can't do for themselves appearing at the beginning of the film, but at the end of the film, they're independent and they're powerful and they move through life. Those are the films I like. So you have fingers in lots of pies, as they say. I do. And we're doing this interview in Hollywood. I'm just curious, how do you deal with life? You're all over the place. Is there a stress in doing that? There's a lot. Um, You know, this morning at 5 o'clock, West Coast time, I was up dealing with a problem in New York uh, with one of our medical uh, situations. Problem, there's never a problem. It's usually just we're looking for solutions to a situation. Uh, And, you know, you go from one meeting to another. The hard part is being able to take off the – Hollywood hat, which I don't wear well, frankly, because I, I, I find a lot of the Hollywood stuff, just that stuff, um, is take that hat off and, and go and impact a life or make a decision that's going to hopefully help someone maintain their leg and ultimately their life. It, it, that, that's, it's kind of a, a bookend of life, right? You, the fun, inciting glitz of Hollywood down to the, the drudgery of a person that you know is barely surviving because of choices they made. It's, it's difficult. So in terms of – it is difficult. Isn't it? So in terms of looking after yourself, and you, you must have learned a lot from especially your, the, the medical side of, of your career. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, how do you apply things to yourself? And do, do you often pause and think, hmm, maybe actually doing things in a little bit of a different way? Yeah, I do. And, and when I got into the business, I wasn't uh, – I was healthy. You know? I always worked out, and I felt like I ate reasonably de- decent. We had a woman that worked for us. I didn't really know what I was into, frankly, when I got into the business. I was so such a novice in the wound care space. It was I knew there was something I needed to do. Wasn't sure how I was going to learn it other than just doing it. So this woman that worked for us, she was obese, but not not awfully obese. But she called me one afternoon and and was terrified. She was on her way home and she was dizzy. And, and I said, "We need to go to the doctor. You need to go to the doctor tomorrow. Just come in late. It's okay." So she comes in the next morning, just horribly. I mean, like somebody had died in her family. And I thought, "What is going on?" So I called her into my office. She said, I just got the worst news ever. And I said, what is that? I mean, and I, immediately, cancer. She has cancer. And she's going to die. And, and, oh. and I said, what is that? And she said, I was just told I have type 2 diabetes. <laughs> I did what you don't do. I said, oh, is that all? <laughs> um, she worked for me for about two weeks after that. And she quit because she couldn't stop bringing in a dozen donut holes every morning for breakfast. Mm. And she – we never said anything, but she just felt – we were judging because we knew. Had she always done that? Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. No, but And she didn't for a week. And then she started bringing him in, and she quit that week. So it was interesting, and that was the week I hired a trainer. That was the week I hired a trainer, and I got real serious about my health. And, and I realized that what we do today has long-lasting effects. And, and it's you know if I, it's not necessarily if I had a sugar cube or a honey bun today, it's going to you know kill me in a year. But if I had them every day, it's going to make me much less healthy. I'm going to be miserable. I'm not going to feel as good as I do. I couldn't travel like this if I didn't eat properly and I don't rest enough. But that's it, another issue 
that I have to deal with. That's a personal issue. It is, but it's it's an issue that affects all of us, and I think it's the one of the the three or four key factors that uh, affect our longevity that we ignore. We all know about diet and and exercise, mm. but sleeping and and resting is one of those things we can. You know, it's it's funny. I, I think that when we we try to change our diet, it's a it's a major thing. And I was talking to someone earlier today. And I said the one thing, the one thing we can control in our life is the hardest thing for us to control is what we put in our mouth. And I think that was the beginning of really a lifestyle change for me. And an understanding of of the importance is understanding how weak we are when it comes to that. Is no one makes you eat anything. In fact, they can't. And it's just an interesting dynamic. They cannot make you eat anything. But we choose to eat everything. And McDonald's and convenience and speed to delivery. I mean, it's hard to prepare a really well-cooked, broiled chicken breast in 30 seconds or three minutes or four minutes through a drive through without everything else in it. So we we make decisions to accommodate that fast lifestyle and lack of sleep, lack of everything else, because we're so, there's a self-importance that, unfortunately, we all put on our, our own. Uh, we feel like if I don't do this, no one else will. And what if I can't get to that? I'm guilty, and so are you and, and probably everyone else. So what do you eat? What's your diet? Huh, good question. Um, it's embarrassing sometimes to say. I love grilled fish, low butter. If I have a lot of butter on my fish, it just it's like poison. I can't eat it. And it's not because I'm judgmental. It's just because I've lost the taste for that. And a lot of times, especially the restaurants in Los Angeles, if you go to a steak restaurant, they butter the fish up. Right. You know, so I like grilled fish. Uh, sea bass is my favorite. Uh, I eat oatmeal. I like oatmeal. Um, everything is low fat. Uh, will I eat a French fry? Absolutely. It's not my brightest and best moment, but I enjoy some indulgence occasionally. Because if I don't, I'm going to get crazy and eat a chocolate cake because I know me. And I think that's the part of eating. We have to know ourselves. And if you can take a bite of a donut and put it down and not eat the rest of the box, it's okay. Because the rest of your diet should support that indulgence. There's nothing wrong with birthday cake occasionally. Absolutely. But you don't have a birthday every day, right? right? Exactly. Although someone else usually does. So no, the no, temptation is always there. Yeah. But one interesting thing, and I don't want to dive too deeply into this, but it's something we've talked a lot about on, on the podcast. You say everything is low fat, or most things are low mm-hmm. fat that you eat. Of course, the science there is conflicted. And sure there's a lot is. of people today saying, well, actually, fat is okay. And you've got people adding butter and cream mm-hmm. to their coffee, whereas once upon a time, it would have been skimmed mil- milk. So right. there's a lot of confusion. How do you feel about that, I think that there it makes me feel better. A physician t- told me one time. He says, "You know what? How do you feel? How do you look? How do you act?" Okay, now we've got a we've got the beginning of a diagnosis of a healthy life. So if it makes me feel better to eat low fat, I eat low fat. There's nothing wrong with a little fat in your diet, but it makes me feel better. Uh, just like some people mentally and physically think gluten makes them feel terrible, so they don't eat gluten. That's fine. I eat gluten. I can't tell the difference when I don't. So, but I make choices based on how I feel. If it makes me feel bad and sluggish, I don't eat it. And do you have? And you said earlier that you hadn't really thought too much about the future as it applies to you. But do you have a vision in terms of your own human longevity? Do you have goals that you would really like to achieve, uh, physically or? Financially well, or bucket list? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if there is such a thing yeah, as a bucket yeah. list. I think we all, and we all, I mean, maybe some don't, but you know, I want to I travel. I want to see more places that I've seen. I want to engage in cultures that I've not met yet. This is coming into, and I'm often asked, well, why bother about living long and, and healthy? And, and, and one of the things is, 
is just to do those things because life ultimately is short. Right. We'll get there and we'll look back and, realize, and think how short it was. So why not try to do these things if we're physically capable of doing it? Living life to the fullest. I mean, I want, to, I want to be a champion of everything I want to do. I'm not going to be a marathon runner. I'm not going to climb Everest. I'm not going to do things that – there's things I won't do and I have no interest in doing. But there are some things that are important. You know, I want to live long enough and be relevant enough to impact other people. I think it's a responsibility. It's a fascinating life that you live. And uh, I wish you all the best with all of your projects. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it. Just before we go, if you subscribe to the podcast and download it automatically every week, I'm very grateful to you. If you enjoyed a five-star review on iTunes, would be hugely appreciated. It's very helpful to us as we grow the podcast. And I'm genuinely very interested to hear what you think about what we do. You could also look at our website, Live Long and Master Aging. We have a new and refreshed look. You can search through our back catalogue of interviews and there's a link to get in touch with us. We're at LamaPodcasts.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. And you can contact us also by social media, Facebook and Twitter at Lama Podcast. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.